As the world becomes more polarized and distorted from reality, Big Red for America breaks down a new concept, value, or debate so you can better understand the history and facts. Using historical data, basic logic, and common sense, we supply honesty and clarity around today's political topics, value sets, and cultural discourse. This is the Big Red for America show. Hello, this is Big Red, and welcome to the Big Red for America show. I hope you enjoyed our first episode on conservatism that released this Wednesday. If you haven't listened to it, make sure you go ahead and do that. We're planning on dropping our next episode on the history of conservatism next Wednesday. I wanted to use this month's book review, speaking of conservatism, to look at Russell Kirk's The Conservative Mind. This influential book is often credited with starting the modern conservative movement in America. How could I not review it? Get ready, here is The Conservative Mind. So before we dive into The Conservative Mind, I want to take a little bit of time to just talk about who Russell Kirk was and just kind of give a brief synopsis of the book. Um, Russell Kirk is often described as the father of, Mer- of American conservatism, specifically because he wrote The Conservative Mind. Um, he was a professor of history at Michigan State University and published the book The Conservative Mind in 1953. The book was described by The Atlantic as such, quote, The conservative mind has provided generations of conservatives a sense of history and point of view, where before conservatives had felt isolated. On the margins of political and cultural debate, they now could take their place in a great chain of thinkers, beginning in the modern era with Edmund Burke and continuing to the present, unquote. So obviously, even the Atlantic, which is really not a friend to conservatives, uh, acknowledges the impact this book had and Russell Kirk had on the modern conservative movement. Just a brief synopsis of the book, the book itself is over 500 pages, so it's quite a long read and it's a very dense read as well. It covers conservative thought in England and America, starting with Edmund Burke, who was a political leader in Britain following the French Revolution and sought to really keep their ideas out of England. The book covers the growth of conservative thought in distinct time periods by following particular people. People like Edmund Burke, as I said before, John Adams, John C. Calhoun, Benjamin Disraeli, and Alexis de Tocqueville, just to name a few. So now let's take a look at the main themes of the conservative mind. The first canon of conservative thought, according to Russell Kirk, is the belief that a divine intent and order rules society as well as conscience, forging an eternal chain of right and duty, which links great and obscure living and dead. Political problems at the bottom are religious and moral problems. So right off the bat here, Kirk attacks the Jeffersonian idea of liberty and equality, which he believes are too close to the radical French ideas. He argues that there's a sense of duty that goes along with each right. And this line of thought is more along the lines of Lord Acton, who was famously quoted as saying, quote, liberty is not the power of doing what we like, but the right of being able to do what we ought. The full quote continues that this denies that, the ge- that general interests can supersede individual rights. It condemns, therefore, the theory of the ancient as well as of the modern state. It is founded on the divine origin and nature of authority. 
And when he's talking here, he's talking about the Catholic ideal of liberty, which comes from a higher power. And this whole notion of liberty is radically different than how we talk about liberty today. Often when we talk about liberty, liberty today, it's the power to do what we want when we want it. This is the progressive and libertarian view, but it's amazing how the progressives and the left have changed the argument and are actually forcing conservatives to take this view. And this is a view that's just anti-conservative. We can see this with free speech. Leftists censor free speech, particularly on college campuses. So conservatives and the right respond with free all speech or just more free speech which actually isn't a conservative value. Don't get me wrong, conservatives believe and value the right to free speech, but every society has had speech that is deemed, quote, unacceptable and has censored some speech, and this is true in America since our founding. Um, but more often than not, the speech was self-censored um, and where the force came from society. So the correct response to, for example, these speech codes that we see on campus isn't to go off the rails and believe in absolute liberty, which is what the progressives actually want, so that they're forcing us to side with them. And ultimately, this path just leads to destruction. You know, absolute liberty leads to chaos and disorder. But we have to think about and enact the conservative view of liberty, which requires personal morals, personal improvement, and intellectual and moral education. From the book, Russell Kirk quotes John C. Calhoun, who says that liberty is, quote, the noblest and highest reward for the development of our faculties, moral and intellectual. And this goes along with what I was saying earlier, that, that there is a huge responsibility that goes alongside exercising liberty. We see responsibility and liberty even in the Christian scriptures. We see this in Galatians 5, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 and 13, where it says... It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Verse 13 says, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So we are, are freed or liberated. We have liberty from our sin through the death of Christ. But Paul is saying that we shouldn't be using that freedom. We don't have absolute liberty. We shouldn't be using that freedom to sin, but rather... You know loving and serving one another and this is what this is true liberty true liberty requires us to be masters of ourselves first um, to really put these limits on ourselves because the conservative doesn't believe in absolute liberty the conservative has never believed in absolute liberty like this first canon says we believe in a transcendent moral order that has always restrained our behavior and restrained what we can do but we have, we need the liberty, particularly from government, to do what we should do, which is, you know, follow the moral law given to us. Um, and that requires a, you know, that requires freedom. That's a true exercise of liberty, not just doing what we want whenever we want. But circling back, to take a quote from Jen Psaki to the first canon, uh, Kirk's saying here that conservatives also believe in a divine order. That's ruling the our society and our conscience. Uh, for conscience, Kirk uses the picture of a stream to kind of describe morality. He says that morality flows down from God to man like a stream from a mountain, since God is above man. Obviously, such a stream, like in nature, brings fresh, refreshing water that nourishes that nourishes man. But he, he also says human morality is useless 
because there's no higher power from which it comes from. It's just like stagnant water sitting, sitting around because it can't move. And this is what happens when humans try to make morality. We see this with humanism, secular humanism, which Kirk refutes um, and spends pages, pages just kind of tearing apart because essentially it's useless. There's no reason. It's not, it's just humans making rules. There's no higher power from which it comes from. And I've spoken on this topic as well extensively on previous podcasts. Uh, but it's worth mentioning again that conservatives believe their morality is rooted in the divine. Such a root gives our morality purpose and consistency unlike the humanist utilitarian progressives, whose morality simply changes on a whim based off human desires. We can see this with uh, how they legalize homosexuality. It used to be immoral and across both sides of the spectrum. All Americans believe this even on the left, and what changed, it was just simply the progressive attitudes, and that's, that's it. The progressive thought is, since humans are the ultimate moral authority, they have the ability to write and inevitably rewrite the moral codes. And this belief in the divine also gives our society order. Everyone, according to the conservative, has their purpose and place in the divine plan, which allows people to essentially be content with where they are in life. It allow, it gives wherever they are in life purpose because they're part of the divine plan, which is unlike the progressive, since there is no God, since we are the ultimate beings, they can reorganize society and human nature however they see fit, even if it means producing immense human suffering, which we can see in um, socialism, communism, and, fa and uh, Nazi fascism. So the first canon that Kirk talks about uh, really sets the tone and is the root and the base of the rest of conservative thought because if we don't base our all of our logic all of our all of our reasoning in the fact that there is a transcendent moral order then we are no different from the progressives who are just seeking to who just define whatever they want as wrong and right there's no there's no reason that we are more right than they if we aren't basing this in a transcendent moral order. We're just two groups of people coming up with two conflicting ideas and neither one is truly more right than the other because at the end of the day, if there's no God, we both just made them up ourselves. The second canon of conservatism according to Kirk is the affection for the proliferating variety and mystery of human experience as opposed to narrowing uniformity, egalitarianism, and utilitarian aims of most radical systems. So throughout the book, Kirk really actually wrestles with the notion that all men are created equal that Jefferson put in the Declaration of Independence because humans are inherently unequal, were unequal, unequal in almost every way imaginable, um, unequal in abilities, birth, circumstances um, but uh, Kirk focuses most on ability and it's actually that difference in ability and that inherent inequality of ability which is the primary producer of wealth and success in civilized society why because this inequality of ability capitalizes on man's uh, jealous desire to be better than his neighbor and actually derives more success in, uh, in society. But the progressives try to counter this by forcing everyone to be absolutely equal, which is not only impossible, but it's incompatible with liberty. 
Kirk says, quote, Equality benefits no one. It frustrates men of talent and it reduces the poor to a poverty even still more abject. In a densely populated civilian state, it means near starvation for the poor. For inequality produces the wealth of civilized communities. It is It provides the motive which induces men of superior abilities to exert themselves for the general benefit. About one-sixteenth of the British population in this age is responsible for producing two-thirds of the national income, unquote. So, Russell Kirk is saying here, he just said, exactly said what I was talking about with ability, that it's this difference in ability, this inequality in ability, which actually drives men to greatness. But that doesn't satiate the radicals. They want to force everyone to be the exact same. Literally, mindless sheep robots, all with the exact same outcome, uh, which, is, which is impossible. They try to erase everything that makes us different and unique. Conservatives, on the other hand, seek to protect the individual nature of individuals. Uh, we can see progressives try to try to crush individuality through public schooling, uh, you know, educating everyone the same way, having the same curriculum, so no one is truly smarter than another. We also see this in vaccine mandates that everyone has to get the vaccine if everyone's vaccinated. You know, we don't want any sort of um, individuality. We don't want any fluctuations from our perceived norm. Uh, which makes society and life no fun. You know, the conservative view actually makes life more fun and society more interesting and allows people to enjoy life because we are different. We get to enjoy each other's differences. And this actually plays into the third canon, um, which is the conviction that civilized society requires orders and classes against the notion of a classless society equal in judgment of God and equality before the courts of law, but equality of the condition they think means equality in service, in servitude and boredom. So Russell Cook answers his question about equal, you know, all men are created equal by coming to the conclusion that we're all equal in judgment of God and equal before the courts of the law, which is what exactly what I said in our first podcast, our first episode, uh, what is conservatism? You know, we are created equal, even though we're unequal in abilities, we are equal before the law and equal before God. And that's essentially where our equality ends. But the progressives want to force equality of outcome, which, like the second canon, destroys individuality. But they want to do that to try to to try to come to essentially an equal outcome, have everyone have be quote equally successful or equally prosperous that's how they'll that's how they'll phrase it they'll say oh we just want everyone to be equally successful we want you know everyone to just be equally rich uh which is impossible <laughs> and kirk absolutely tears into the ideas of karl marx um whose socialist and communist policies uh required a classless society and even today when we talk about classes we get very uncomfortable because we think of classes like Marx thinks of classes. We think of the proletariat versus the bourgeois, AKA the poor v the rich, which is how Marx wants us to think about race because he wants us to hate those who are more successful than us. But that's not how Kirk sees class. Kirk doesn't see class in terms of wealth, but rather he, he talks extensively about aristocracy, which I have to admit makes 
made me uncomfortable when I first read the book because we're so programmed. Marxist teaching is so deeply ingrained in America. We, as soon as we hear of class, we think about wealth and we think about particularly inequality of wealth. Uh, but that's not what Kirk's talking about here. He's talking about aristocracy, but what is an aristocracy? Um, he says that an aristocracy is an elevated group of people that act as a buffer for the app between the government and the appetites of the masses. And having a direct, not having a direct democracy rather, is seems un-American, but it's really not. Because like I said, America is not a direct democracy. It was never a direct democracy. It was actually a republic. But the progressives have so ingrained that in us through education that when as soon as we hear aristocracy, we want to plug our fingers in our ears and just pretend it doesn't exist or just scream, you know, classist, racist, all of that stuff. Um, but it's funny because even as you talk to these leftists, they, they are pro-aristocracy. It's just not the conservative aristocracy. These, the angry leftists who are going to accuse me of being classist or elitist, talking about the benefits of aristocracy, um, value it. They value the aristocracy in different places. Like I said, they value it in the administrative state. They, they like it in college and colleges uh, and quote unquote academia. So please just save me the fake outrage. I can already see through your lies. But to describe what is an aristocrat and what is aristocracy, Kirk actually quotes John Adams who says that an, an aristocrat is anyone who can procure two votes. So anyone who can essentially inf influence somebody to vote with him. So obviously this is a very low bar for an aristocrat. So it's clearly not elitist. Um, he also says that the aristocracy can never be eradicated. It's part natural and part artificial. He also says that it's produced by differences in nature, which pos positive legislation can not alter substantially. Uh, and positive legislation, whenever Kirk uses it, is, is in terms of like redistributionist welfare policies, positive legislation, giving the power, government more power to do things as opposed to negative, which is keeping the government out of things. So, and just this harkens back to how the radicals want to destroy ability, the difference in ability in humans to make everyone quote unquote equal. Another element of the aristocracy is that it's not dependent on positive law for its existence. Like... John Adams said it's part natural. It just, it will always exist. Uh, it also can't be destroyed by transfers of land or wealth, but rather it's just transferred to different people. Uh, the progressive aristocracy is just transferred to the government. Uh, people in the executive branch will, and the administrative branch will be, will be part of this new aristocracy. Another part that John Adams talks about is that even trying to enforce equality reinforces the aristocracy. So just like he said previously, you can't destroy the aristocracy. It's always going to be around. It's a phenomenon of nature. So no one has ever or will ever see, succeed in abolishing it. Because people will naturally look to leaders. Look to a class of people who can influence others and can lead others. That's just part of human nature. And like I said, the progressives actually really value aristocracy. But it's just the aristocracy of the intellectuals and the academics well the aristocracy might be not might not be an actual class in and of itself it's designed to protect the masses from from themselves i know this sounds paternalistic but it's not unique to Amer to conservative aristocracy where we see this aristocracy exist is 
now in elements of the Electoral College and the Senate, which was originally supposed to be elected by the state legislatures and not directly to the people. And same with the Electoral College. You know, you elect electors who then elect the president. These senators and these electors are not, were not supposed to ultimately be responsible to the citizens and could truly make good policy rather than popular policy. I want you to notice the distinction because there is a big distinction. This aristocracy that was supposed to be artificially made in the Senate could truly pass good policy rather than popular policy because they did not depend on popular vote. But current progressives want to destroy these vestiges of functional aristocracy to make, quote, everyone equal. But what they actually want to do is make everyone, quote, feel equal while they replace the aristocracy with one of their own. The fourth canon of conservative thought, according to Russell Kirk, is the persuasion that freedom and property are closely linked and that economic leveling is not economic progress. I mean, Kirk really needs to lay off like Karl Marx here because he because Karl Marx just isn't standing a chance right now. He's just absolutely tearing into the poor guy. But these progressives who are following Karl Marx's ideologies are dead set on redistributing everything, which is what economic leveling is. Kirk writes, quote, economic leveling, the ancient rights of property, especially property and land, are suspect to almost all radicals and collectivist reformers hack at the institution of private property root and branch, unquote. But why is owning property so important to Kirk? Um, at first I didn't really know why. Um, but then as you continue to read the book, you start to understand why. Uh, Kirk describes private property as the, quote, bedrock of society. The full quote reads, quote, private property, which both aristotic and middle class elements in conservatism believe to be indispensable to an orderly society, remains an influence of vast power in Britain and America, and no faction dares to propose its abolition. Which is true, I really have yet to hear mainstream politicians, even the cuckoo socialists like Alexander Ocasio-Cortez or the Squad, advocate for straight-up abolition of private property. I mean, you'll hear fringe socialist and communist groups call for that. I mean, but you'll hear fringe groups on both sides say absolutely crazy things all the time. But these mainstream politicians aren't brave enough to be advocating for the destruction of abolition of private property, rather. But why is private property so important? Beyond just being the bedrock of society, why? Kirk writes that, the that a population of people who are often not conservative can be conservative if they have something to conserve, like liberty and property. So progressives, when they remove property from people, makes them less conservative because they have less to conserve. And then they can easily fall into the Marxist trap of hate everyone who has more than you. He has another quote in his book where he says, quote, no orator ever made an impression by appealing to men as to their plainest physical wants, except when he could allege that those wants were caused by someone's tyranny. And this is the progressive and socialist lie that someone, normally the rich, are responsible for all of your suffering. Therefore, we need to take everything they have, everything that they've worked for, and keep it for ourselves. Which is hilariously hypocritical and selfish if you ask me because these socialists will always accuse conservatives of being, um, or capitalists rather, of being 
quote, selfish, but it's not selfish when they want to take what you've worked for, what you've earned and just keep it for themselves. You know, people who did nothing to earn it. And this just goes more to the sp unspoken truth of humanity and economics. So the conservative knows that humans are inherently greedy. The question is, which economic system best harnesses human greed for the greatest good? Is it free markets, which at least encourages people to be greedy, you know, uses people's greed to go to drive success, you know? I want to make more money, and in a free market open system, I can market my idea, make money, make my life better, or the top-down authoritarian socialist models, which utilize human greed by saying, I want what he has, therefore the government should take what he has and give it to me. So which which one is truly going to make a more quote-unquote just society? Which one which one harnesses human greed better? I you know, obviously it's the free market system. But the conservatives have know that truth. The progressives, the progressives just don't have that truth because they don't believe, like the first canon of conservatism or conservative thought, they don't believe in in human nature like that, like the conservatives do. And we continuing on with this progressive leveling, we hear about this economic leveling all the time. Bloomberg you know, a left-leaning news site, far left-leaning news site, said that Biden's budget that he released in May was more focused on redistribution than actual growth. And they were actually kind of congratulating him on that. Uh, the lie that's pushed by these progressives is that this is economic progress, that somehow when we take everyone's money and move it around, everyone will, will all be equally successful, which is false and then it kills economies because it kills entrepreneurship why would why would you work hard to make money to make a living if the government's going to take it away and give it to someone else who didn't work for it the leftists and the progressives and the socialists they have no answer for that there are ideas like oh well they'll just work hard for this for the quote-unquote state for the good of the society which no humans ever have ever done Back before organized economics, when we were just subsidence farmers, Kirk says that the man never worked any, never worked hard enough to go above bare sustenance. When we don't have any reason to work hard, man won't. We're an inherently lazy creature. We'll do just enough to barely get by. That's it. We're not going to work for the for some quote unquote greater good. But you know what does motivate people to work? money and just to really finish off this canon i i know i frequently say this and this is no means an original thought this isn't necessarily a big red thought but i know i've said that the government cannot make everyone equally prosperous because it's just impossible instead they'll lower everyone down to the lowest common denominator yes they'll make everyone equal but they'll make everyone equally poor and miserable The next canon of conservatism by uh, Russell Kirk talks about is, quote, faith in prescription and distrust of sophisters, calculators, and economists who would reconstruct society upon abstract designs. Custom, convention, and old prescriptions are checks upon a man's anarchic impulse and upon the innovator's lust for power. So here again, Kirk takes another shot at Marx, who wants to re not only redesign society, but humanity based on his, quote, abstract and greatly flawed designs. 
Marx's economic policies have failed everywhere that they've been implemented. In America, since we're not at that socialist point yet, we see this in the conservatives' wariness for the growth of the administrative state, which bloomed under progressives like Teddy Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, and then Franklin Roosevelt. Progressives wanted to use this administrative state uh, to centralize power in the presidency so they could rule effectively as a dictator but make it more palliative to the American people. And Kirk also mentions in his book that the radicals hate complex government like the founders designed. They hate the notion of checks and balances. They hate the notion of slow government, which was how our government was designed to work. It was designed to not function in cases of grave disagreement, but be utilized and be able to take action in times of great need. But the, concert, but the radicals hate that. These radical progressives, progressives hate that. They need a centralized government so they can have centralized authoritarian power. We see this as progressives keep marching America towards a more, quote, direct democracy, yet keep a significant and ever-growing portion of the American government away from the people. Progressives want the president and the senators to be elect elected directly by the people. But the massive administrative state has no direct connection to the people. It's almost like a sleight of hand. They're pretending that like, oh, we're, people are going to be more involved in government. But you're actually not because the progressives want a whole bunch of federal agencies to be running the show because they believe that these quote unquote experts would, can run your lives better than you ever could. And conservatives simply disagree. The final pillar, according to Burke, is recognition that change might might not always be beneficial. The main, I mean, the idea here is that not all change is good. However, it's not the role of the conservative to fight all change. It's impossible to stop change. However, the conservative needs to permit change by, quote, the weary and unromantic necessity of reconciling old values with new faiths so much derided, so difficult to execute, and quite indispensable to the survival of civilization. The conservative does this by realizing the wisdom of the ancients and the human part of humanity, the connection that we have to our previous generations and with the future generations. We recognize that we're not the most morally wise generation that has ever lived, unlike the progressives, who believe that until tomorrow, of course, while they then curse themselves for not following moral rules that weren't even made yet. There is a benefit for conserving old values, and not everything has to change. Kirk quotes uh, Edmund Burke and talks about the three P's. He talks about prejudice, which is the intuitive knowledge that enables men to meet problems in their life without logic chopping. Prescription, the customary right that grows out of the conventions and compacts of many successive generations. And presumption. The inference in accordance with the common experience of mankind. And he says that these idea that these ideals in Burke's mind help guide humanity throughout the ages and help us live out our divine ordinance. Because remember, that is essentially the driver for conservatives is to live out this divine ordinance because we know that there is one there. Generational wisdom shouldn't just be thrown out and replaced with humanist morality just for change sake. And Russell Kirk also hits progressives again when he says, quote, it appears the real love for liberals, which I redefine as progressives, is not for liberty, but for progress. So these liberals and these progressives just seem to be wanting change for change's sake. But the problem is, what are we progressing to? 
how can we even measure progress without an overarching moral code that governs the universe? Since progressives mostly just absolutely throw out the idea of a belief in God, how do they measure progress? How do they define what is good? How are they defining this progress? Um, and this pairs nicely with our podcast actually from last week about critical theory, which just criticizes things for criticism's sake and cultural Marxism that believes in revolution for revolution's sake. And it leads us nowhere. We're just in a constant state of confusion and revolution, which is actually what the progressives want. So Kirk not only comments on conservative thought from the past to the present, but he also gives conservatives ways to look forward. He says, you know, he lists some things that conservatives need to be concerned about in the future. Um, first off, he talks about the regeneration that conservatives need to be concerned about regenerating spirit and character. Like I said before, liberty requires us, you know, to have some restraint on ourselves. We can't have this absolute liberty that means I get to do whatever I want, whenever I want, you know, that's not, that's not true liberty. And the only way we'd actually be able to have a functional society that people acknowledge that is regenerating spirit and character, you know, a return to uh, Christian values or a return to religion um, to help us really change society from the roots up. He also gives us some concerns about leadership. He says that leaders need to be, uh, need to focus on the preservation of reverence, discipline, order, and class. We can use this as a checklist for future political leaders and even social leaders. You know, Kirk mentioned in the last few chapters of, his, chapters of his book that social leaders will be just as important as political leaders. So even if we want to be a conservative leader, you know, these are things that we need to think of. We need to think about, you know, what came before us in terms of reverence. We need to be disciplined, you know, if we're going to truly be free, if we're going to have this liberty, we have to be self-disciplined, order which is a very important conservative value, order in society, oral order in our own lives. And then class, like I was talking about the aristocracy. Um, we need to have that class, that, that aristocracy class to protect the people from themselves as paternalistic as that sounds. Um, he also says that our leaders need to purge our system of education to make it liberal again. Now, the current system, this current education system, particularly the post-secondary education system, acts more as a publisher of progressive propaganda than an, than an actual education center. Other conservative concerns, you know, concerning the general population, is that we have to restore status and hope to society. We have to restore the purpose and family to people. And this is actually under attack, as we see by the radical left and uh, the Black Lives Matter movement that wants to eradicate the nuclear family. An old quote from their website before they took it down said, quote, We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another. Um, so you can see the Marxism kind of baked into that and how they want to destroy the family. Because when progressives destroy the family, destroy how much we depend on each other, then we're, we depend on the government more. Another con uh, another conservative concern is that we need to resist armed doctrine, you know, socialism and, and progressivism. We need to restore right reason to political philosophy. We need to restore some element of truth to that and have truth in those conversations, which is what I'm trying to do with this show. Um, 
use reason, use logic appropriately, not in some twisted fashion, um, to truthfully discuss our these issues that we have today. Um, we need to resist these doctrines because, as Kirk says, we cannot make Earth a paradise, but we can make Earth hell. And for the evangelicals, evangelical conservatives, we know that this is not our final home. We know that we do eventually have a home waiting for us in heaven. Kirk continues saying that we need to recover true community. And like I talked about with the BLM, free, Russell Kirk says that free community is an alternative to compulsive collectivism. We as conservatives need to be active in our local communities, our local churches, other community organizations, etc. No, so that we don't, so we can, we have that connection with each other. That's what we need. Kirk says the task for conservative leaders is to reconcile individualism with the sense of community. So, you know, America, we're told, you know, it's all about you, individual, be individual, but we aren't necessarily individual creatures. No man is an island, as the saying says. We There is a community out there. You know, there, there's a society and we're all part of this and we need to rekindle that and become less... Um, almost less individual not not so unindividual that we're that we are collectivist or communal like the progressives one but that, but like with everything there's a fine balance and as conservatives we need to find that balance and like i said before progressives want us to be isolated so we depend more on the government and not on each other So what are my final thoughts on the book? I think it's an excellent, excellent book, but you have to be prepared for a very dense read. It took a lot of focus to understand and comprehend all of what Russell Kirk was trying to say. I had to reread certain passages because I, I didn't understand them. And there's still like, I'll have to reread the book again because there are still some parts I don't understand. It's just so dense. It's so scholarly that you have to be prepared for a dense read. I didn't agree with everything he said, but the vast majority of what he said was still wise. I particularly disagree with some of his notions on the South pre-Civil War and and conservatism, but that might be a topic for another podcast. And be prepared to be uncomfortable how how disparagingly he talks about democracy or direct democracy, as he says, uh, will make you uncomfortable, but you're gonna learn from it and like i like like me you know i learned a lot through reading this book and i'm really glad that i that i read through it i believe that every conservative could read this book just to rip a quote white right from the book he says quote the more thoroughly we understand our own political tradition the more readily its whole resources are available to us the less likely we shall be to embrace the illusions which wait for the ignorant and the unwary Thank you for tuning in to the Big Red for America show. I'm your host, Big Red. I'll see you all next week. Do you like what you heard? Leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify or wherever you hear your podcasts. And tell your friends. That's one of the best ways that you could help this podcast grow. Thank you so much. And if you want to hear more from our Big Red team, Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and subscribe to our Substack for more articles and our sources. Thank you so much.